0: you believe that it's 2019, 2019, we're almost into the 2020s, isn't that bizarre? Last week as we were on the verge of a new year, I asked you all to think about coming together as families or individuals and planning and purposing as to what 2019 would look like in terms of loving the Lord with your everything. We talked about last week the great command to love the Lord with all your heart all your soul and all your strength. I love the Lord with all your everything. And I encourage each of us to plan out what that would look like in 2019. So I just want to ask really quick, raise your hand if you did that this week. Raise your hand. Okay, right, Good, well done. All right, a few of you, that's good. Now, this morning, as we've entered this new cycle around the sun, right, another year, I think it's fitting that we as a family of the household of God should do the same. We should sit down and say, what does it look like for us as a family, as a church, especially now that we have this new place we call home, this new location, we have a footprint? We want to take a look at who we are and what our vision is for this church, and I want to do it within the context of what we're learning today in Deuteronomy 6. I couldn't have planned it any better if I had actually planned it out, that we would end up in this place in the text this morning. It's a perfect foundation for who we are as Christians individually, and who we should be as a church. And so I want to refresh our understanding this morning of what the vision of this church is. That's my goal this morning, to exegete Deuteronomy 6 and help us to understand what that means, but also to remind us who we are as a church. Does that sound like a good plan this morning? You guys up for that? Good way to start the year? All right. Well, Brian and Esther did such a wonderful job reading our text this morning that let's just jump right into it. Remember to fully understand what any text means. We have to read it In what? Context. Very good. Seven years of teaching this. You guys are getting it. It's awesome. Read it in context. And looking at the context will help us understand, first of all, the purpose behind the great Shema. The purpose behind the great Shema. If you're taking down notes, you can write this down. We're going to look at the purpose behind the great Shema. What we can do if we look at Deuteronomy 6 is we can look at the overall breakdown of the chapter. And this is what it looks like. If you want to break it down very simply, Deuteronomy 6 looks like this. You've got purpose in verses 1 through 3 and in 17 through 19. You've got the actual command of the great Shema in verses 4 through 9. You've got a warning against what I'm calling the anti-Shema in 10 through 16. And then you finish off the chapter with the motivation behind following it. All right? So when you're reviewing chapter 6 this week, as I know you're going to because you want to be students of the word, You write this down and look at it. and Remind yourselves how it's broken down. You'll notice that this text gives us some wonderful bookends in those purpose statements. Now, reading through it, we don't catch this, but this is one of the things we have to remember, that when there's repetition in the Bible, we need to stop and look at that repetition. And so when we look at these purpose statements, they will answer the question, why is it good to follow this great command? Now, what you'll see in each of these three three statements is a kind of succession of reasoning. So that, so that, so that, so that. Now, for us to look at this and see, we're just going to take verses 1 through 3, but you can also look at it in 17 through 19. Let's look at there there in verses 1 through 3. Now, this is the commandment, the statutes, and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it. That, so that, You may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them. Notice that he's repeating himself. Hear, teach, do, do, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, so that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Moses was to teach. So that the people would do what? Do, right? Moses was to teach. The people were to do, okay? They were to do the commands. Now, if you look at what's next in 17 through 19 and verses 1 through 3, it's so that what? So that they would go in and possess the land and ultimately show fear or reverence to the Lord, to Yahweh. What's interesting is that even though each of these three purpose statements, verses 1 and 2, verse 3, and then verses 17 through 19, they all are broadly the same. They shift in one main way. Verses 1 through 2 speak of possessing the land. Verse 3 speaks of multiplying in the land. And verse 19 speaks of thrusting out their enemies. So possessing, multiplying, and thrusting out their enemies. All of these are ways of saying, go conquer in the name of Yahweh. Go conquer in the name of Yahweh. And we can fit this into the broader narrative of scripture by realizing that this has the same underlying theme as what was told to Adam and Eve in the garden. You guys remember what was told to them? Remember the garden, the first commands of the Lord to his people, Adam and Eve? We think the first command is usually don't eat of the tree, right? Well, that wasn't his first command. Does anybody remember what his first command was? Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Look at this. This is in Genesis 1, 26 through 28. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. And we think, great, he's telling them to make babies. That's a good thing, right? Right? Well, that's not exactly the core principle of it. What he's saying is, is create an army. He's saying create people that will then worship me and give allegiance to me. Fill the earth with these people and subdue it. Now, subdue is not a word we usually use that often because we don't talk a lot about warfare here in the domestic United States, right? But man, it's a warfare word to go and subdue and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, in the Pacific Northwest, I always have to kind of help interpret this. This is not a reasoning as to why hunting is godly. Okay, That's not what this is talking about. There's nothing wrong with hunting. Hunting is good, right? But that's not what this is about. Having dominion over the creatures is acting as kings and queens, acting in the place of God, ruling over the land. And so basically what he's saying is you are my image, so multiply subdue the earth and have dominion. It's actually very similar to the great Shema. You see, God's people have always been meant to combat and push back the kingdom of darkness and advance the kingdom of light, the kingdom that is ruled and reigned by Yahweh himself. We've discussed at length before that there's a general background, especially in the Old Testament, of Yahweh being at war against other false gods that have behind them demonic beings. And the world is in the grip of the adversary of God, Ha-Satan, Satan himself. And the kingdoms of the earth are backed by these demonic entities, every kingdom of the earth. And until Yahweh rules and reigns, the mandate to subdue the earth hasn't been accomplished. And so God's people are meant to combat that and make advances into the kingdom of darkness, spreading the kingdom of light, until Christ comes truly to fully institute that. We won't be able to do it on our own, but we are to make advances And so God's people from Adam and Eve to Noah to Israel to the church have this same underlying theme of command that might go something like this. Display my image by obeying my commands. The commands that issue forth from my heart. Multiply through discipling others in these commands. And by doing that, you will subdue, conquer, and possess the earth in the name of Yahweh, the Lord God of the Bible. To make it even more succinct and simple, it could be phrased like this. Teach, obey, multiply, subdue, so that Yahweh might be glorified. That's really what the people of God have always been taught and told. And all of this is for the purpose so that Yahweh might regain his right spot of God, creator, savior, redeemer of this universe. And so the same command is what God calls for the church to perform. Compare with me this mandate to the people of Israel here in Exodus 19.5. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And notice this is in Exodus 19 to Israel. But notice what the church is called in Revelation. This is from Revelation 1, 4 through 6. John, in writing in Revelation, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is, and who was, and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, so that, what has he done? He's made us a kingdom kingdom. Priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. See this in First Peter chapter 2 as well. We are given that same mandate to bring the dominion of Yahweh forth in this world. For all the discrepancies and the discontinuity that happens between Israel and the church. The church is not Israel and Israel is not the church. There is one sharing of one huge commonality. We are to be a people who are taught the heart of God, carry out the heart of God in obedience... And in so doing, proclaim his glory and holiness and capture and subdue the hearts of people so that he might reign in them. And this is why when the time came for Christ to give the Great Commission, it sounded so similar. Guys, remember the Great Commission? This is Matthew twenty-eight, eighteen through 20. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. His death was not just to pay for our sins. It was certainly that, but it was also to throne him as king. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, as you're going, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, which brings them into the community, the covenant community of God, and teaching them to what? Observe, which means obey all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, notice I'm not talking about salvation here. Obedience to God's commands has nothing to do with salvation. Salvation is freely given by Christ regardless. In fact, in the midst of our rebellion, it's given. But as God's people, which is what the church is, we are then called to carry out his heart in the world around us. Christ has been given the authority. He's with us to accomplish our task of conquering in his name. So, as you're going throughout life, multiply those who are allegiant to Christ by evangelizing them with the proclamation that Jesus died for our sins and rose again as king, and then teach them how to obey him as king. You following so far? This is the mandate throughout all of Scripture for God's people. And what Deuteronomy 6, 1 through 3 gives us is the overall mission of God's people, and it is from this understanding of the overall narrative of Scripture that we get our church's mission statement. Now, many of you might know it, many of you might not, but here's what it is. Making disciples of Jesus by teaching, equipping, and sending. Say it with me. Making disciples of Jesus by teaching, equipping, and sending. This is why the slide that you'll see often and what you see up on that sign outside is teach, equip, send. Now, this leads us into the command itself. If this is the mandate for God's people to teach one another, to obey, to multiply, to then conquer in Christ's name, to bring him glory, then we need to understand why the command, that gives us the understanding of why the command is given. Now we need to understand the command. The context is all this. Let's look at Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9 to see the actual command. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. What we see here, you write this down, is the command of the great Shema. We saw the purpose of of the great Shema and now we see the command of the great Shema. As we looked at last week, the great Shema first states that Yahweh alone is the one that we serve. That he is God above all other false gods. It is not some loose statement on monotheism, as we like to maybe press on this from a Western perspective. This is a statement that he is above all other gods, and he is whole and complete. And because he alone is creator, who gave us life, and for the Israelites had been their redeemer out of Egypt, then it only makes sense to respond in gratitude by loving him with their everything. Everything they are, everything they have. And this passes down to us as New Testament believers. What's so amazing about this, though, is that it's equally as important, the command itself, to love the Lord, but notice everything that comes after it. The command to teach one's children and grandchildren all that issues forth from the heart of God. You ever notice how we are an outsourcing society? Well, the church, they're supposed to be the ones that teach our kids Bible stories. We outsource the discipleship of our own children. But the Bible commands us to teach our children. Why? Because it's what good parents do? No, it's actually because this was to be a building up of a new society. At the fabric of society is the family unit. And if the family unit is taught this command and it dwells within the house then the society itself would grow to also have the foundation of this teaching. So that when pagans from an outside perspective, non-believers in Yahweh would see this society acting in obedience to the commands, they would see the representation of Yahweh's heart. They would see who God is. And it was to be a communal, not an individual initiative. It was to be a group of people, a society, not just individuals. And so the first piece of making this new society and priesthood of believers is to teach them the commands. I'm going to be coaching my kids' uh, basketball team here shortly, and during our our orientation meeting, uh, the guy leading it said, Hey, uh, how many of you are teaching uh, first and second graders? And we all kind of raised our our hands. And he looked at us and he said, How many of you are planning on running an offense this season? (laughs) And a couple of people raise their hand and he goes, don't, they're first and second graders. You'll just be annoyed and they'll hate it, right? Why? Because what are first and second graders learning? Are they learning how to, you know, jump up and dunk on one side of the rim and finger rolls and inside outs, What, you know, through their legs, you know, Harlem Globetrotter type stuff? No, they're learning how to dribble. And by dribble, I mean head down doing this as fast as they can, right? They're learning to shoot. And by shoot, I mean put it between their legs and huck it as hard as they can at the basket. They need to be taught the basics before they can ever be asked to obey the basics. And so the primary job of the church is to teach. Most churches have come to this place where all Sunday is for is preaching the gospel from an evangelistic perspective. Now, hear me, that's fantastic. We never want to get rid of that. But if we focus just on that, when does the teaching occur of making disciples who are obeying all that's been commanded? It must be both. It must be evangelism to draw in new believers and teaching to help raise up those people in sanctification. It's to teach the will and heart of the Father to those that are allegiant to the Lord. Teaching the heart of the Father was, in large part, what Jesus came to do. Remember this from uh, Matthew 7. This is Matthew seven twenty four through 29. Jesus was saying at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Oh, I missed a spot. Sorry. My screens are off here a little bit. Great was the fall of it. But the whole point here is that Jesus was teaching and they knew this and they knew he was teaching from authority. Jesus came to do this. And this is, what, this is what, he, uh, what he also said in John 18, 37. Pilate says to him, so you are a king. And Jesus answers, you say that I am a king for this purpose, I was born. And for this person, I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is in the truth listens to my voice. He said later, his sheep hear him and follow him. It is so sad to me that most of Western Christianity is contained within 20 minutes, sermonettes for Christianets, where people go and they sit and they listen and they go, ah, and then they go about their week. And there's really no teaching of obedience. There's no teaching of what it is to obey the commands of Christ. We are the people who are unwise because we have heard the commands of the rock and yet we do not do it because we've been taught a false gospel that the true gospel requires no response of obedience. The true gospel requires a response of obedience, not to earn salvation, but as a response to it that's been freely given. Jesus's death, resurrection, ascension, enthronement, and pouring out of his spirit, all work to bring us liberty and redemption from death and sin, so that we might, in a growing fashion, serve him, And obey his commands. And so the hope of the leadership of this church is that you are taught the commands and the heart of the Father and the Son by the work of the Spirit. And to be taught well, we all must make it a life goal and a daily pursuit to learn on our own. To not just wait for the pastor to teach it, but to go in and delve in and look for ourselves. We must make it a corporate identity of this church to be taught. Brothers and sisters, I love you very much, but I only get one hour out of every 168 each week. Do you think you might need a little bit more time in the word? Absolutely. For it to stick, there must be individual effort on top of the corporate learning. But then, just as in the great Shema, to be taught requires that there's an application and obedience. In the Hebrew language, to hear but not act was to never hear at all. To hear but not act was to never hear at all. And this is why the prophet Jeremiah said this to the people of Judah in Jeremiah 5.21. Hear this, O foolish and senseless people, who have eyes but see not, who have ears but hear not. To let the sound waves go into your ears and think that that is Christianity is to be foolish. We are to act it out, to respond to it. We must act on what we are taught. This is the due portion of God's command. And so, as a church leadership, we know that the second portion of our commission to make disciples of Jesus is not only to teach God's command to one another and to our children and to our grandchildren, but to do it all the time, in all places, in all aspects, so that we might obey. We might take this second portion of the commission to obey God's commands and equip one another to follow and to obey. Now, I want to take this for a minute and unpack it. So let's step off the trail of the Great Shema for just a second, because I want to explain why we do what we do as a church. I think this is really important. I've had a number of conversations in the last couple of weeks where I've realized that I don't talk about this enough, and so I want to help us understand part of this vision of the church. What is it for us to be equipped to obey the command to love God? What is it for us to be equipped it's very easy for us to turn the commands of God that we see throughout the Old Testament into standalone religious requirements. Okay, so if we're taught the commands, then I got to not eat shellfish anymore. Okay, good, go, right? Well, guys, that's, that's a ceremonial law. We, we could talk about that another time as to why that's not necessary to be followed. But we have to remember that all the commands in the Old Testament fall into two categories. Two categories. The first one is ceremonial laws that were laws that made the religious practices of the Israelites distinguishable from the people around them. It was for purposes of religious ceremony. Now, do we need to practice those anymore? Why not? Because of Jesus, there's the right answer. Jesus perfectly fulfilled all those things. And all those things pointed to Jesus. And so those ceremonial laws, i.e. don't eat shellfish, we don't follow those anymore because they're not moral or social laws. But the second type of laws is social or moral laws for the purpose of creating a societal way of life that reflected the heart of God's desire for his people to act in righteousness and justice. When we go through it here in Deuteronomy, you're going to see odd things like, here's how to replace an ox when you dig a hole and your neighbor's ox falls in it. Well, we're all like, what? It's 2019. None of us have oxen. I don't know. Maybe a couple of the farmers in the group have have some oxen. I'm not sure. But why do we need to learn about oxen? Well, how do we apply in 2019 here's what you do when you sideswipe somebody's car and you want to run off and not pay for it but you should probably leave a note that's a societal moral way of acting in 2019 that carries the same principle and so these second the second group of laws was for us to act in righteousness and justice towards one another by keeping these laws given in the old testament Israel would show themselves to be a society of righteous individuals Notice there at verse 25 of Deuteronomy 6, it says, and it will be righteousness for us. In other words, doing good has with itself a righteousness, not a righteousness that we can earn salvation or do away with our sins, but it will be righteousness for us. And so doing these things is what God's people are called to be so that they can display the heart of God. So when we get to the New Testament, we too, the church, are asked to be a new society of people that reflect God's heart through the way we interact with one another. Remember Jesus' Sermon on the Mount? How many of the things he talked about had to do with oxen? How many things he talked about had to do with how you relate to one another? The answer is all of them. What he was teaching was, you are to be a new society of people. But that sounds impossible, right? It was for Israel. It was impossible to be good, to be righteous, to be nice to each other. And quite honestly, as a pastor in a church, I think for some reason, it seems like that in the church sometimes too, that it's impossible for us to love one another. But the reality is, is that's not truth. Because brothers and sisters, we've been given three things that were not available to the Israelites of Deuteronomy 6. First, we're given the word of God in a way that we can study and recall it every day. I've got on my phone probably 20 different Bibles. I've got my Bible right here up in my office. I've probably got 10 more copies of the Bible. I can go on the internet to Bible Gateway and bring up tons of Bibles. We have more access to God's word than ever before in the history of man. Second, we're given the example of Jesus as one who perfectly fulfilled the law. The Israelites had never been given an example of someone who perfectly fulfilled the law. And third, and most importantly, we are given the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who will not only teach us, but will also help us to obey. Look at John 16:12 through 15 with me. Jesus said, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, that's the Holy Spirit, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority. But whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. That's John 16, 12 through 15. And so we are taught by the Holy Spirit. I think many Christians think that they're taught by the Holy Spirit by osmosis. Well, if I have a Bible, somehow this will just get in my head. You actually have to read it. You actually have to study it. Well, look at John 14. This is John 14, 15 through 17. Look at what Jesus says, guys, and and there is no caveat on this. Read the first few words here, and this will make you lay awake at night. If you love me, raise your hand if you you say that you love Jesus. If you love me, everybody repeat it with me here now, you will keep my commandments. Does anybody see an asterisk? No. Well, Jesus, that's impossible. Ah, he beats us to the punch. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, the Holy Spirit, to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Now, guys, why is he the helper? What's he helping us to do? Be encouraged? Be happy? No, guys, read the context. What is it that he will help us to do? Obey his commandments. Okay. The Holy Spirit helps us act on what we are taught. He equips us to obey the commands of the Father. Now, just as John states, he will be in us and will work to produce fruit in our lives. But guys, in my opinion, there's a huge missing piece as to the work of the Holy Spirit in the church today. And I firmly believe that is why so many Christians are left wondering if the Holy Spirit has a work in their lives. I have met with so many believers who sit in churches and watch other people have these manifestations and these feelings and these experiences and they think, man, why am I not Holy Spirit filled like that person? But it's because we've siloed off the Holy Spirit to only work in the individual in those mystical experiences. I believe that we can find the missing piece of how the Holy Spirit works in the the church by asking this question. Question and answer time. Get ready for an answer here, guys. Where does the Holy Spirit dwell? Two places. First, it dwells where? In each of us. Secondly, where does he dwell? In the church. He collectively dwells within the church. One of the first and foremost jobs of the Holy Spirit is to unite us with the Father, and in so doing, unite us with one another. And so, one of the main ways that the Holy Spirit sanctifies us and equips us to obey the commands of Christ and to reflect God is through the refining fire of relationships within the society of God's people. It is in the midst of the stuff we hate in the church, the conflict, the feeling like we don't belong, the wondering how to pursue other people and friendships within the church, in all these things that we all detest, it is in these things, the crucible of relationship, that we are made more into Who Jesus is. It's in the midst of this that we are reminded by the Holy Spirit of what God requires, and it causes us to be changed and sanctified. Perfect example is the crucible of marriage. One day I'm going to write a book about the crucible of marriage. I don't know that it'll fly off the shelves. The crucible of marriage. Why is it a crucible? Because you know what? My wife and I are different. And my wife and I do not look at the world the same way, even though we both love Jesus Christ. Now, do you think that leads to lots of peace and shalom in our marriage? No. And so what does it take for us to actually love one another? It takes sacrifice. It takes laying down our opinions. It takes empathizing with one another and listening to each other. You think Jesus was a lot like that? Empathizing, listening, caring, loving, sacrificial? You see, when we have conflict in our marriage, I can either dismiss it as annoying, and that maybe if I dumped my wife and went with somebody else, then things would finally work out for me. Or I could realize that it is, in fact, an institute of sanctification for both my wife and I to grow more into the image of Jesus. And Brothers and sisters, the church is no different. The relationships in church are no different. We are changed within these things that are difficult and hard to deal with. And so many Christians have convinced themselves, unfortunately, that they have a love for the Father regardless of what is happening in their relationships with his people. It's the saddest thing in the world to me. I don't understand how it happens because this is what the word says. Look at 1 John four nineteen through 21. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also do what? Love his brother. To love God means we will practice the love of God in the midst of our relationships with one another. In the Old Testament, it was stated like this, Leviticus nineteen eighteen: You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am Yahweh. In other words, so do what I say. Now, notice with me that it was not some ambiguous stranger, random acts of kindness that defined God's people. It was not a random act of kindness toward a stranger. It was toward another person within the society of God's people. That's what defined them. And the commands to love God and to love one another within God's society of people are so intricately linked that when asked the greatest command, what did Jesus say? He said to him, "You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind." This is the great and first commandment, the Great Shema, and a second is like it, pulling from Leviticus 19:18. "You shall love your neighbor as yourself." On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. It is in this process of learning the commands that we are taught and employing them in the midst of difficult relational situations. That equips us and sanctifies us so that our flesh is removed and the fruit of the Spirit remains. To avoid this or to not make it a priority is to avoid sanctification and the work of the Spirit. And dear friends, I think this is why the church is largely inept at showing the character of God is because we don't want to change. I see it in marriage counseling. I see it in relationship mediation here in the church. We just want to convince the other person they're wrong and we're right. But there is no sanctification in that. Brothers and sisters, when you are in conflict in your marriages or with your children or within the church, it is not a crucible or trial because the other person won't listen to you or because you are perceiving them as being mean or unreasonable. It is actually a blessing of sanctification for both parties to grow and change into the image of God by empathizing with each other by sacrificing themselves for the good of each other and by loving one another in spite of how we feel. You see, with every conflict, if we are open to the Holy Spirit's work and secure in our knowledge that God loves us and is proud of us for learning from failure and error, it is in that that we change to be a bit more selfless, a bit more like Christ. And in loving relationships, this will not be a one-sided deal. If it's always you sacrificing for the other person, always you listening to the complaints of the other person, and that's abuse. But if both parties listen to one another and change accordingly and let the flesh be taken off of them, that is a loving, reconciled relationship where sanctification is happening. And this, dear church, is the process of equipping. We teach one another the commands of Christ that issue forth from the heart of the Father so that we might love one another and be equipped in that. That is why in Romans and Ephesians and Colossians, Paul follows up his statement of the theology of God with the practical application of how to love one another. Paul is trying to help us by teaching us and then equipping us to obey by loving each other. In the West, what's happened is we think that the more Bible studies we have, the more we talk about the word of God, the more structured our small groups are, the better structure they have, then we will be equipped. But guys, I got to tell you, some of the biggest jerks I know in the church are the people that know the most about the Bible and have attended the most Bible studies. What we as the church should be is taught, and then we do. And then we walk it out. You get an hour of teaching on Sunday, you got enough for the week. You don't need more Bible studies. A lesson that is never applied is a waste of time and effort. I jokingly say that so many people say, I'm not being fed, I'm not being fed. I actually think the problem in the church is that a lot of people are being fed, but they're never actually putting out. They become constipated Christians. they got tons of the word in them, but they're never actually sending anything out. And we don't want to be that. So many of us avoid confrontation and critique and complain behind one another's back and think that that is Christian. But all that does, dear flock, is create Christians who have ears but don't hear. So, dear church, I know that this is hard. I know what I'm asking is hard and that you could go to any number of churches and they will never ask you to do. And that would be easier for you. And I know that. I know we're fighting against the grain, especially in this culture. The expectation that so many hold for the church is that churches are the place we go to find a ready-made social group or a ready-made program that makes us feel good and happy and accepted. That the church is the place where everybody treats us well and that there is no conflict. That church is the place where you automatically fit in and connect. And so if you don't feel that way, well, something must be wrong with that church and you should find a new one. Would you agree with me that this is kind of the surrounding idea in the church? Well, so many of us wander around looking for the soulmate version of a church or the soulmate version of a social group within a church. And in so doing, we miss the very point of being equipped that we have to lay down our lives and reach out to others instead of waiting for them. I hear all the time, nobody invites me over to their house. Guys, all 200 of you say that. You know what the solution is? Start inviting one another over to your house. Stop waiting for someone else to invite you. Well, I don't belong. Dear church, be honest. Raise your hand if at any point in the time you've been at this church, you felt like you didn't belong. Raise your hand. Be honest. Be honest. Raise your hands. Nice and high for everybody to see. Nice and high for everybody to see. Everybody look around. See, the reality is, is that all of us at one point or another feel like we don't belong. So guess how we're sanctified? By laying down our own lives to reach out to one another, to open up our homes, to accept one another, regardless of if we're alike, and to love each other well. Brothers and sisters, I fear that if we're not careful, this false notion of finding the soulmate church or the soulmate subgroup within the church, it will creep into mission more than it already has. Now that we have membership and now that we have a building, I fear that some of us may fall into the trap of thinking that relationships should be easy, that every one of us should just feel connected to the fullest. But dear brothers and sisters, you just saw that every one of us struggles with not connecting and not feeling loved. So when you find yourself feeling disconnected or wondering what your role is within this church, I would suggest it's not time to point fingers outward, but it's time to ask the question, am I truly pouring into these relationships? Am I truly pouring out in the things that already exist, the community groups, the discipleships, in membership itself? Am I thankful for my brothers and sisters? Am I laying down my life for them without expectation of them returning the favor? Those moments when we get over ourselves and lay our lives down for those around us are the very moments that Christ works in us to look like Him. You guys are familiar with this. Philippians 2, 1 through 8. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, that's talking about the community of the church, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. But each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. You see, guys, sometimes your laying down of your life is that day where you feel disconnected from everyone in church and you just really don't want to try again to reach out and make friends. That's the day where you lay down your life and count yourself less than the other person. And in that, the Holy Spirit will work massively in you to grow you into obeying the commands of God. Because what are the main commands of God? Love God and love others. How most churches overcome this problem is to create what are called affinity groups. These are groups that are based around life stage or hobbies or stage of spiritual walk. Now, hear me, there is nothing wrong with this. And as we grow as a church, we will probably initiate some of these. I think it's great to have groups of support around people who are in the similar life stage. But these groups should be add-ons to the core missions of making Disciples. Because if we're not careful, what they do is create the illusion that you are connected because of something external. Guys, I did this for a while in my early days of Christianity. I'm gonna do something for Jesus. We're gonna open up a gym and have an open gym for Jesus. And you know what it looked like? A bunch of foolish men yelling at each other and talking just as much smack as the world, but we pasted on a prayer and a 10-minute sermonette for Christianettes at the front. We're Christian basketball players. No, you're not. You're guys who wanted together to play basketball. Why don't you just do that and leave off the prayer and the sermonette? But Hans, it's serving the gospel. No, it's not, because every time we preach the gospel, we would then go beat up on each other and yell at each other. It actually served no purpose for the people who were coming in to see the community of Christ. We want to have these affinity groups that trick our brains into thinking I'm accepted. But guess what happens when that affinity goes away? Guess what happened to the mom who's part of the mom group, but then suffers a miscarriage. All of a sudden, she doesn't feel like she should be part of the mom group anymore. You see, this is what happens when affinity group is what draws a church together. There's nothing wrong with it, but it can't be the core mission. If we're not careful, it will create this illusion that we are connected when we're not. Your church, while support is wonderful, and while we we want to create that, the goal of this church is not to create support groups. Those should come about as you get to know one another and find out similarities in your story. People have asked me before, why don't we have a, a, you know, um, a um, group for uh, families that are combined, right? Divorced families or, or widows and families that are confined, combined. Uh, well, the reason is, is because you guys should just get to know one another. Get together on your own. You don't need Hans to announce something and to say, we have a special group for you. No, you need to do the work of reaching out to one another and finding out one another's story because in that, you are growing and changing and being sanctified. And when you're sitting in those groups, it's great to have support, but we don't want to create such a homogenous group of same gender, same life stage, and same situation that there is very little challenge. Guys, I love sitting in groups of 30 to 50-year-old white male pastors. You know why? I don't have to work at all. I get what they're talking about, and they get me, and we don't have to be sanctified at all. When I'm sitting with a group of people of a different gender, different ethnicity, different language, guess how hard I have to work? Super hard. And in that, I am changed and sanctified to love someone better than myself. The commission of the church is to teach you and equip you to be sanctified and to create the society that the great Shema was talking about here, where we are showing the heart of God in our love for one another. It's growing towards being selfless. And so the way that we do that at this church is this. We have two groups. We have community group and we have discipleship group. Guess what the point of community groups is? It's in the name, building community How hard is it to get to know the person who's 30 years older than you and of a different gender in that community group? Hard. But guess what? It teaches you to listen and empathize and love. But Hans, I don't gain anything. We don't have a Bible study. You just sat through an hour of me telling you the Bible. You need another Bible study? How about you take what was taught on Sunday and apply it in that community group? We have discipleship groups. Somebody tell me what the point of discipleship groups is. It's in the name. Disciples, making disciples. Now, how do we do that? By having people. The only thing we've gotten in similarity is Jesus and our gender. Everything else is different and we need to spend time getting to know one another. This is where older men and younger men get together and older women and younger women get together. It's straight out of Titus 2. Our community groups are straight out of Acts 2. But I'm gonna be honest with you guys. This philosophy is hard because it goes against the flow of what people want from the church. I want my affinity group that makes me feel connected so I can go about my business thinking I'm loved. But guys, that's not the commission of the church. Dear brothers and sisters, the fact that these groups require you to lay down your life and your schedule to make them a priority, the fact that these groups require you to listen and empathize, the fact that these groups will cause conflict that needs to be reconciled, this is the very point of them. The fact that they are hard is the point of our small groups. Well, Hans, that's not a very good marketing philosophy. Darn tootin'. But it's a great way to create disciples who care less about themselves than about the people in their body. And it takes time and work to grow in intimacy with someone who is not like you. And through that work, rather than critiquing each other or withdrawing from one another and blaming the church for not providing enough structure or the right structure, we simply need to lay down our lives and opinions to serve one another learn about one another, and deal with conflict with one another. And in the midst of all of that, you will not be able to help but turn into the very people that God is calling you to be, to love him and love one another. Does that make sense? I know we are on a diatribe here, and we're off of the Great Shema. But the point of the Great Shema is to create a society that shows the heart of Jesus to the people around them. And this is what we are trying to create. In his amazing writing on community called Life Together, Dietrich Bonhoeffer spoke of what he called a wish dream. This is the romantic idea that community should be easy, and when it is hard, something has gone wrong. Let me read to you some of what he says. By sheer grace, God will not permit us to live even for a brief period in a dream world. He does not abandon us to the rapturous experiences and lofty moods that come over like a dream. God is not a God of the emotions, but a God of truth. Only that fellowship which faces such disillusionment with all its unhappy and ugly aspects begins to be what it should be in God's sight and begins to grasp in faith the promise that is given to it. The sooner this shock of disillusionment comes to an individual and to a community, the better for both. A community which cannot be and cannot survive such a crisis, which insists upon keeping its illusion when it should be shattered, It permanently loses in that moment the promise of Christian community. Sooner or later, it will collapse. Every human wish dream that is injected into the Christian community is a hindrance to genuine community and must be banished if genuine community is to survive. He who loves his dream of a community more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter, even though his personal intentions may be ever so honest and earnest and sacrificial. He continues on later, he says, When a person becomes alienated from a Christian community in which he has been placed and begins to raise complaints about it, he had better examine himself first to see whether the trouble is not due to his wish dream that should be shattered by God. And if this be the case, let him thank God for leading him into this predicament. But if not, let him nevertheless guard against ever becoming an accuser of the congregation before God. Let him rather accuse himself for his unbelief. Let him pray God for an understanding of his own failure and his particular sin and pray that he may not wrong his brethren. Let him in the consciousness of his own guilt make intercession for his brethren. Let him do what he is committed to do and thank God. You see, brothers and sisters, it is through the struggles within the body in the midst of the work of the Holy Spirit that we are equipped to become all that we should be. And this is what Paul was speaking of in Ephesians 4 when he says that the teachers and the pastors and the leaders are to equip the saints for the work of ministry that the whole body of Christ might be built up into his image. And so we are taught the commands of Christ so that we might practice them within the crucible of relationship within the body. And this is why it was necessary for Moses to remind the people that the command to love God was to be at the very fabric of their society. In the very fabric of their homes, it was to be taught at all times to all generations in all places that we are to love God with our everything. And this would then overflow into loving one another, and so God's kingdom would reign amongst his people. Likewise, we are taught and equipped so that finally we might be sent forth Teach, equip, and send. That we might be sent forth to multiply by making more disciples and slowly but surely watching the kingdom reign of Christ take effect in our neighborhoods, in our places of work, in our schools and homes. And we move forth from these local communities to the ends of the earth as proclaimers of God's good news and ambassadors of his reign, establishing his kingdom. Teach, equip, and send. It's the vision of this church And we get it straight from Scripture. All the while, we are proclaiming the truth of the gospel to those around us and inviting them into God's covenant people that they might be taught, equipped, and sent. And this, dear church, is why our mission is what it is. But it's so easy to get our focus turned onto something else. And so Moses speaks a warning to the people in the next section. Don't worry, I'm going to move a little bit quicker now. Take a look at verse 10. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build and houses full of all good things that you did not fill and cisterns that you did not dig and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. But the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes which he commanded you. And so what we see here is the warning, and what I'm calling it is the warning against the anti shema Write this down, the warning against the anti-shema. Moses knows the heart of man and that there will be three easy ways to be sucked away from a purposeful and focused effort to love the Lord with our everything and to create that society of people in which that overflow passes out into loving one another. And so he breaks it down into three warnings that need to be heeded by those of us who are serious about giving our allegiance to Christ. And all of them, I believe, come back to the anti-shema, a heart of selflessness, or selfishness, sorry, a heart of selfishness. If the shema is to love the Lord God with all that we do, all that we think, all that we are, all that we have, and to love one another, then the anti-shema comes back to one thing. It comes back to selfishness. And the first thing he points out is the danger of forgetting our need to love God because of prosperity. He speaks this in verses 10 through 12 there. Be careful, he says, when you come into the land and all of a sudden you're rolling in it. You've got good food, good cars, good stuff. You will forget your God. Now many in this room might say, but Hans, I'm not prosperous. I only make about 15K a year or 25K a year. Remember that if you make 15K a year, you're in the top 8% of wealth in the world. If you make 25K, you're in the top 2% of wealth in the world. If you make 50K, you're in the top 0.31% of wealth in the world. The vast majority of Americans are all prosperous, and we can easily be blinded by what we have and believe that it was gained by our own effort or our own hard work. But when we are only concerned about our prosperity and living out our dreams and having our kingdom, we quickly separate from the heart of our Father and end up rebelling against the commands to lay down our lives for one another and for his purposes. This is the first thing he warns against. Be careful that you don't let your prosperity overwhelm your desire to follow Jesus. Secondly, he warns against the danger of turning our back on God because of surrounding idolatry. He says there, you shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. He speaks to this in verses 13 through 15. It's so easy as human beings to get caught up in all the things that surround us. We're truly lemmings who want to be like everyone else. We all convince ourselves in high school that we want to be different, but the reality is we're all trying to be accepted. Each of us was born with a built-in desire to belong. Is that true? Absolutely. And unfortunately, rather than fitting in because of our allegiance to Christ, being part of a community, being disciples, we want something else something external that makes us feel like we fit in. It's called keeping up with the Joneses. We all want to be like our neighbor next to us and maybe even competitively a bit better than them. We want to have a better house, better car, better life. And Moses' point was that we need to serve Yahweh alone and not our own desires that degrade into the worship of idols, of lust and greed and power, the idols of selfishness. Rather than operating in a place of competition and idolatry of self, We are called to lay down our lives for the Lord and for one another. And it takes constant vigilance to ask ourselves whether or not we are giving our allegiance to Yahweh or whether we're really just giving our allegiance to ourselves. Well, third, Moses warns the Israelites against the danger of doubting God. First, against the danger of prosperity. Second, against the danger of idolatry. And third, against the danger of doubting God because of hardship. He says there in verse 16, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Masa. That was the place in which they were struggling. They felt like, man, we left Egypt. We don't have water. We don't have food. What's God going to do for us? He drug us out here to kill us. Many of us feel this way often. Lord, why? Why? You saved me only to bring me into this hardship, we say. But the reality is, is when we do live a blessed life, we often lull ourselves into a false sense of security that we have achieved Shalom that we have achieved paradise, that we are back in the garden. And it so shocks us when we're so boldly presented with the effects of sin and brokenness, either in our own lives or in others or just in the world around us. And we refocus the universe on our concerns and issues rather than looking at our place in the narrative of God. And what does that narrative tell us? It tells us that we walked away from God, that we disobeyed and turned our back on him. And yet, He is such a good God that he pursued us, initiated a plan to draw us back to himself, to rid the world of our sin, to pay the price for my sin. And he is coming back to fully install his rule and reign and usher in shalom and wholeness like the world has never known. Brothers and sisters, God is so good that he inserted himself into this creation in the form of his son, Jesus, the Christ And he went to the cross to die in our place that we might be saved from our sin. And not only that, he surrounded us with brothers and sisters in Christ who will walk with us in our trials, which will sanctify us in the midst of the congregation. You see, dear brothers and sisters, God never needs to do another thing to show that he is good. He never needs to do another act to prove to us he has sacrificial love for us. No matter what happens in your life and mine, God is good and the cross of Calvary shows us that and we must remember that every day. At the heart of all these three pitfalls that Moses warns against is selfishness, my kingdom of prosperity, my worship of self and my hurt and trial above the truth. It is what runs at the core of our culture. When John wanted to write about the world, that was against God and was operating on its own, he uses tons of symbolism. In Revelation 13, 16 through 17, he talks about this interesting thing called the mark of the beast. It says in Revelation 13, 16 through 17, that the beast, the, the one who is leading this world and society that is against God, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or on the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is the name of the beast or the number of its name. We love to turn this into this mysterious thing. Oh, are we going to get barcodes on our hands? And guys, here's as simple as it is. You have two kingdoms at work. You have the kingdom of the Shema in which it says in 6.8, you shall bind the laws of God as a sign on your hand and on your forehead, front lines between your eyes. The Shema, you shall write them on the doorposts of your house on your gates. If you belong to Jesus, his law, his way of living will be at the core of everything you do. If you want to be part of the other kingdom that reigns in rebellion against God, then dive into the prosperity and let it mark your hands and your foreheads. Be part of that kingdom, the anti-Shema. You see, at the heart of the anti-Shema is selfishness. It's not loving God nor loving people. It's wanting what we want and building what we want to build. And Moses knew that the redemptive nature of God needed to be remembered constantly, day by day, or each of us and the Israelites would fall into these traps of selfishness, concerned only with themselves. And that is why Moses finishes with the motivation behind the greatest command, the motivation to fulfill the Shema there in verse 20. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. And we will flow next week right into chapter seven where he says, guys, this is your whole point of existence. You're a chosen people, separate and special to represent me in the world. Everything we've talked about today. And so, dear church, our application today is that I want to encourage you to make it a priority to be taught and to study what you were taught so that you might apply it. To make it a priority to jump in with both feet into your community groups and discipleship groups, into membership itself, so that you can be sanctified and changed by these relationships by speaking truth to one another in love. I want us to be a church that makes it a priority to be taught and equipped so that we might boldly proclaim the Lord as we are then sent throughout our daily lives. And as we as a church add on fun events and groups, we need to remember the core calling of this church. But to do this, we can't simply try harder. We can't simply rely on our own internal motivation to obey or be sanctified. That would be like me sitting in a counseling meeting and hearing somebody's concern about something broken in their life and me just looking at them and saying, Stop it. That wouldn't be a very good counselor, would it? We can't just rely on our own motivation to try harder. What we have to rely on is the same motivation that the Israelites were to look to, but failed. You see, what they were to look to was the fact that God had redeemed them, that God had rescued them from their slave master of Egypt, and that he had done so not because they were righteous or because they were good or because they were the biggest group of people in the land, It was because he was a good God who loved them and redeemed them by his grace, not by their works. For Israel, Moses knew that they needed to remember that the response to love Yahweh was only empowered and emboldened in so much as they first remembered Yahweh's love for them. That long before they responded, he chose them, he redeemed them, and he commissioned them to be his witnesses in the world. And if they could grasp that truly, then they would realize that the commands are actually for their good so they can accomplish all that Yahweh has called them to accomplish. Brothers and sisters, if you spend 2019 just trying harder to learn more and be better in relationships, you will end the year more frustrated and farther from Christ and his people than when you began. Some of you have even tried that and I can see the frustration in your faces. But we instead must wake up every morning and remember the heart of the Father towards us that can perfectly be communicated in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he loved us and loved his body, the church, so much that the Father sent his Son to redeem us from our sin so that we might know his heart of love and shalom. If you don't walk with Jesus intimately today, Maybe you've been a person who hops from church to church trying to figure out where you belong. Well, you belong here. I can tell you that. And even if it's hard at first, this is the church you're to be at because you're here today. And we want to help you. We want to teach you and equip you and grow you and send you so that you can proclaim that same gospel that motivates you and motivates us. That God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life not isolated in their own little kingdom, but with God's people for eternity. And we want to teach, equip, and send in that way. We want to teach you that through Christ, he accomplished signs and wonders that can never be mistaken. And in those signs and wonders, we saw his love. And that he has given us his commands, that it might go well with us, and that we might be successful in proclaiming his kingdom. And then, And only then we will be empowered to accomplish all that he asks of us. You see, church, remembering his selflessness and love will overflow into lives of selflessness and love so that we might love God and love one another. Our vision for this church is to teach, equip, and send, to make disciples of Jesus that love God and love one another. Before we can ever be taught and equipped and sent in Jesus' name, we must first be motivated by what he did on the cross. And that is our motivation. For God so loved the world, and he first loved us, that we then respond by being taught and equipped and sent. Then and only then, by remembering his gospel, can we be taught to hear, equipped to obey in love, and sent to make disciples in his name.